Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to hear some of the guests that have been on JM and the AM recently. And we start with Yehuda Gelman. Yehuda Gelman, with an incredible story, is participating in Bike NCSY. My conversation with Yehuda Gelman next to start JM Rewind here at the Nahum Single Network. Uh, with us live via telephone is Yehuda Gelman. Yehuda Gelman is one of many that's going to be part of the June 24th Bike NCSY event. Bike NCSY happens on the 24th of June. Registration is open for the race for the ride that begins 18 days from now. Go to bike.ncsy.org, bike.ncsy.org. Uh, it inspires men, women, and teens from around the country to become involved in a powerful initiative to raise funds to help NCSY teens afford their gap year experience. Yehuda Gelman, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you for having me on. I was told you haven't, uh, for a long period of time, you had not ridden a bike since the age of 12. That is correct. What on earth would make you get on a bike and participate in what I am told is a grueling bike NCSY day? So about a year and a half ago, I met a wonderful guy by the name of Eric Winmeyer from the No Barriers organization. He introduced me and he told me about the No Barriers program, which is taking people and empowering them to break through their barriers with the premise of what's within you is stronger than what's in your way. I said, okay, I could do this. And I started cycling. Didn't turn back from there. Literally just picked it up, so to speak. <laughs> now, yeah. now you are in a very interesting situation, uh, I would say, health-wise, because we've been told that you actually have CP. I'm curious for how long, you'll tell us. And you have something called hydrocephalus. Could you tell us what that is and for how long you've had it? Sure. So hydrocephalus, uh, I was born with both of them. Hydrocephalus is fluid on the brain. It's excess fluid. Um, there's no real cure for it. There is a treatment option. And cerebral palsy is a, a neuromuscular condition that causes a little bit of spasticity in my legs, which actually does make the biking a little bit more difficult, but much more fun. Do you mind? It does make it more fun? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I guess if challenges are a fun, then the answer is it's much more fun, right? Absolutely. Do you um? Do you mind if I ask you how old you are? I'm 33. And in all seriousness, um, there must have been people in your lives. I shouldn't say must have been. There might have been people in your life, doctors, family members, who advised against this. Or am I wrong? Um, they actually did not. No, I was rarely advised against doing what I wanted. Interesting. And you've all, and when it, when it says in my notes that you've always been involved in the community of those who are disabled, uh, what does that mean? Does it mean that uh, b because of your situation you're involved or you've made a special effort to reach out to those in challenging situations? Um, so both, because of my situation and also I, I made a concerted effort to um, uh, include the rest of the community, help them understand what, help them understand what they're going through. Well, navigate it, and I guess that would go with any that that would be meaning you would you would bring anyone's disabilities uh, to to people's attentions, not those who specifically have what you have. Correct. 
Yehuda Gelman is with us live via telephone on the 20th. No excuse, right? No excuse, guys, for us not to ride because Yehuda Gelman is riding in a very challenging situation. He is with us live via telephone on the 24th of June. He'll be part of the Bike NCSY, and we, of course, invite everybody to the website. It's bike.ncsy.org. This audience knows how incredible the work of NCSY is. Bike.ncsy.org, bike.ncsy.org. At that site, you can register. You can uh, certainly sponsor a rider. I would assume your page is already up, right, Yehuda? Correct, it is. So people could find Yehuda Gelman and give uh, a gift to him um, in support of NCSY or give to NCSY in support of his efforts. And it's all happening the 24th of June. Um, all right, so what about the ride itself? You alluded uh, earlier to the fact that your ride is going to be a little bit different the way things are going to work physically that day than for most of the other riders. Tell us about you know, some of the things you have to adjust to or be careful about because of your situation. Um, it, it's not really so much about the adjustments. It's more about, you know, uh, slow and steady. Just make sure you one pedal stroke in front of the, uh, after the next. Um, I guess it kind of is the same for most riders. Uh, the difficulties for me arise with uh, elevation, which... From what I hear, other people do, do find that challenging as well. Right. So I guess I'm in good company. And yeah, so that, that's pretty much it about the ride in terms of in terms of the difficulties for me. Um, balance, like I said, is an, is a little bit of an issue, um, but we uh, we push forward. And the moment that changed everything again is when is when you met up with somebody who uh, is an expert at uh, smashing barriers, so to speak. Correct. Eric Winmeyer. And he did. He influenced you to the point where you said, hey, let's just go ahead and do this thing. Uh, I assume you're somewhat familiar with the charity. Uh, NCSY does an amazing job in terms of scholarships for those who are heading for summer programs and for their gap year. This is specifically for those going to their gap year. must make you feel good. You know you'll be riding it at the same time, making sure uh, some of the uh, youngsters out there that really need a gap year in Israel are going to get it. Oh, absolutely. You know, Nachum, what's interesting is that um, even with the disability, I was able to learn in Israel for a couple of years. And the fact that I get to ride now to give other people that opportunity is is amazing. Boy, you're inspiring and you give us no excuses. I'm, try- I'm trying to think of a valid excuse not to do things like this, but I can't think of any. Yehuda Gelman is with us. He has CP and hydrocephalus. He's riding uh, in the uh, bike NCSY uh, ride on the 24th of June. How many total miles is this? I will be doing 50 miles. Have you done 50 before? I have. All right, so you you have it under your belt. It's not like you have to fear that you're going to try to do something you haven't done already. Uh, and, how's tra- uh-huh. and how's training going? I guess that even, even though you've done 50 already, you still have to stay in tip-top shape to go about this on the 24th of June. Training is going uh, well. <laughs> Are you one of those guys that we see on the roads on Sunday uh, in re- in remote, hilly areas of upstate New York? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Where do you do your training? Around the Rockways. Mm, nice. Well, I'm suggesting to everybody, when you go to the bike.ncsy.org website, look for the name Yehuda Gelman. Inspiring and uh, and guilt-providing, frankly. He's riding uh, his bike 50 miles in this amazing Bike NCSY ride, uh, which gives everyone an opportunity, men, women, and teens from around the country, to become involved in this powerful initiative 
to raise funds to help NCSY teens afford their gap year experience in Israel. June 24th is the ride. Register now by going to bike.ncsy.org. And, of course, look for the name Yehuda Gelman and sponsor him as much as you can. Yehuda, I thank you for taking the time, and we wish you the absolute best of luck on the 24th. Thank you. There he is, Yehuda Gelman. Very inspiring. He'll be there the 24th of June on the route that uh, Rabbi Marchuk and everybody else will be taking <laughs> on behalf of the NCS Wires. Unbelievable. That was my conversation with Yehuda Gelman and uh, the topic bike NCSY. Next up is uh, David Greenfield. David leads the uh, Metropolitan Council on Jewish Poverty. Join me after their legislative breakfast to talk about some of the amazing accomplishments of the organization. David Greenfield, my conversation with him. It's next here on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. David Greenfield is with us live via telephone. Met Council on Jewish Poverty had their 42nd annual legislative breakfast last Sunday, June the 3rd in New York City. David Greenfield is CEO of Met Council and joins us live via telephone. Mr. Greenfield, welcome back to JM in the AM. It is always a privilege and a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for having me, Nachum. I appreciate that. I thought it was an amazing event. I also thought it was a big reminder, and this is something you could really speak to because of your background and experience, an important reminder that government can have a real positive impact on the lives of thousands of people uh, when when there's a good cause, when there's a good effort at, on the front lines taking care of different things. Absolutely, and that was really the goal of our legislative breakfast last Sunday. As you mentioned, it was the 42nd annual one. I cannot tell you that I've been to all of them because I'm <laughs> only 39 years old. But for the ones that I have been to and the feedback that we've got, it certainly seemed like it was the most successful and well-attended breakfast. It was the first time that our breakfast was sold out. It was standing room only. And the theme of the breakfast was fighting poverty and hate. And that is really why we host these breakfasts, which is to bring together elected officials to highlight for them something that many of them are not aware of, which is Jewish poverty. 1.6 million Jews living in the New York area. 560,000 are either in poverty or near poverty, which is shocking when you think about it. When you talk about the stories and the services that we provide, whether it is the largest kosher food network in the country that provides food every single day to 35 kosher food pantries, or the real horrors, and we discussed this as well, of domestic violence in the Jewish community, we are on track this fiscal year to have over 1,000 clients who are victims of domestic violence and we are the main organization in the Jewish community that services these folks or the seniors or the affordable housing or the Holocaust survivors, over 3,000 that we provide service to every single year. People are shocked, and they walk out of these events, and they say, I cannot believe there's that kind of poverty right here in New York in the wealthiest Jewish community in the world, and it allows them to recognize that they, the elected officials, and there were over 400 people in the room, 60 of whom were public officials, that these elected officials, including Senator Chuck Schumer, key members of Congress, members of the Assembly, like the Speaker Carl Hasty and the city council, of course, they walk away and they say it is our obligation to be part of this effort to fight Jewish poverty, which is the job of the Met Council on Jewish Poverty. We're the lead organization and spokesperson on behalf of Jewish poverty in New York. David Greenfield with us, CEO of Met Council. And we should make the point, by the way, people listening, so obviously in the New York area, may not realize 
that your work is uh, being directly or their communities are being directly affected by your work when it comes to the UJCs, the JCCs, and I'm sure other groups that you can mention. Those are the groups that are that are getting the funding that you're talking about and making sure to distribute the food and funds when necessary and the help you described when necessary to the people in the community. Yeah, we have a very unique model. We have nearly 300 employees who work for the Met Council. Around half of them do not work at my main office at 77 Water Street. They work mostly for these JCCs, like you mentioned, either an organization like Borough Park Kojo or the JCC of Canarsie or the JCC of Washington Heights. I was in the Bronx, the Bronx JCC. Wherever there's a vibrant Jewish community in New York, we have a JCC to help that community. And our staff usually is working out of their offices to help people who are struggling, who are in poverty, who are in crisis, who are Holocaust survivors. And it's really a unique model because we don't want people to have to come to Manhattan to get served. We have 16 offices all across the city that we are affiliated with and another 35 food pantries that we supply food with. And these JCCs, they all do amazing work. We're really proud to support them. And that's how we get the work out to the communities, and that's really how we have this comprehensive network of organizations that are helping to fight poverty. I will add a very important point that this year, an individual who personified that fight against hatred and poverty was an assembly member. His name was Michael Samanowitz, Oliver Shalom. He was a great assembly member from Queens. He was a big supporter of the Med Council, and he was a real advocate fighting against anti-Semitism. And so we dedicated this year's breakfast to his memory, and we honored his family his son, Yonatan, spoke at the event. It was really incredibly moving. And, and that's really the kind of work that we do, which is to highlight not just the work that we're doing, but to recognize the work that legislators are doing and to thank them. And even non-legislators, this year we actually honored the police commissioner for his work in fighting hatred and really pouring resources into the only dedicated hate crime task force in the country that the NYPD has. I think that's what's so vital about our work, which is we're able to represent the broader community on issues of poverty where, quite frankly, no one else is doing this kind of work. He seems like a really good guy, Commissioner O'Neill. He just has that uh, has that way about him. I mean, you know him better than I do. I would assume you'd agree that there's something. He very- really is. You know, he's just so down to earth. He's he's a cop's cop. He sort of came from the streets as a beat cop, worked his way up, which is so incredible, and now is commissioner and oversees the amazing thirty five thousand men and women of the NYPD. And he always says his biggest number one concern is fighting terrorism, and people take it for granted, but that's what he does every day. But he also makes sure that any time there's a hate crime, he's super responsive. He's out there. He's pouring the resources in. He enjoyed the breakfast. He was there for over an hour, which is an astounding considering how much is going on on a Sunday, including the Israel Day Parade that Sunday. So that was something we were excited about. And then, of course, we were part of a coalition that was successful this year. We were part of the political coalition to advocate for something called Fair Fears. This was a successful coalition pushed by the Speaker of the City Council, Corey Johnson. And the idea is that if you are living in poverty in New York, we're going to give you half-price metro cards so you can get to and from work, and the money that you save you can spend on the basics like food and shelter. And it looks like there's a deal on Fair Fairs as well. Once again, the only major Jewish organization to be out there advocating, part of the working group to making sure that this is happening, was us. And this is huge because we have 225,000 clients that we helped in the New York area last year, all of whom are going to benefit now from these half-price metro cards 
that are going to go to lower-income New Yorkers. So that's what we do, and that's wow. why the legislative breakfast is so vital. It's not just an opportunity to come and schmooze, which is nice, or have good food, which, of course, is nice. It's really an opportunity to work and to really highlight the issues that matter, and also to thank people and recognize my board members, for example, such as my co-president, Ben Tisch, and my co-president, Joseph Allerhand, who are very active and involved as lay leaders who are successful business leaders in New York who are giving back to the broader Jewish community. A couple more points I want to make. First of all, the, um, uh, the, the, uh, because of what you mentioned on the domestic violence front, and I don't know if it was always like this. Your organization has basically become a 24-hour organization. You're, you're willing and you're ready to help people who are literally in the type of situation you described at 2 a.m. if need be. And that's, you know, that, that's an added responsibility, frankly, that's you know, way beyond the 9 to 5 of running an organization. That was absolutely, the- absolutely. I will tell you that just a few weeks ago we had a woman who called one of our social workers at 11 o'clock at night she was beaten by her husband. She was beaten so badly that she was in the hospital. Her eye had popped out of her socket as a result of the beatings. And our social worker went over, picked her up in an Uber, picked her kids up, and then is currently helping her put her life back together. If it's an emergency, that's our job. That's what we do. We are there to do the work on behalf of the community, and we work with all the other organizations, which is really what's very unique about the work that we do as well, there's not competition for better or for worse. Unfortunately, not enough people are doing this kind of work. So we're working with other great organizations, for example, on the issues of domestic violence and other crisis situations like opioid issues. We're working with Amudim, a friend, Svi Gluck, who we work very closely with. We're working with other major organizations in the community that have these issues. And we have that partnership, and we're trying to be supportive because of our size and the fact that we are the largest Jewish charity, the largest Jewish tzedakah in New York. We have the ability to help other organizations and to work with them and to really highlight these issues that people don't want to talk about. The reality is that domestic violence is a tragedy and a travesty and an outrage in our community, and we have to do something about it, and we are. We're servicing the victims of domestic violence. At the same time, it's a tragedy that we have tens of thousands of Holocaust survivors who are living in poverty. We are the largest organization in America that serves needy Holocaust survivors, and we're doing that work as well. And at the same time, it's horrible to think that there are people who don't have food on their tables, and we are the largest kosher food network in America as well. That's what we're designed to do, and that's what we do. And to your point, we do it every single day. I literally stay up at night thinking about what more can we do to fight poverty in the Jewish community in New York, because that's our job. David Greenfield's with us, CEO of the uh, Met Council. Uh, by the way, an important message for the firm community, in my opinion, um, you have to be very proud of the work that Eric Goldstein's doing as CEO of the UJA Federation of New York. I have to tell you that without the UJA Federation of New York, we at the Met Council could not do our work. And Eric Goldstein, of course, who's a very proud Shomer Shabbos leader, he's the first Shomer Shabbos CEO of the UJA Federation of New York. He's really bringing the community together. The UJA Federation has reached new heights. They're raising more money than ever before. They're more focused on bigger communal issues like poverty. We are working together with the UJA on their $36 million Poverty Centennial Initiative, one of the exciting projects that we're doing with them actually is, for the first time, several of our uh, pantries have gone digital, which is really, really cool. So basically we have fresh direct for pantries for needy people. So needy people, instead of waiting online, they can now log on, 
get the food they need. If they're not physically able to, the food gets delivered to them. And if they are, they could simply come and pick it up. Gone are the days of waiting hours and hours and hours online. And that's really thanks to Eric Goldstein and the UJ Federation that is hyper-focused on working with us on combating poverty in the Jewish community in New York. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons I wanted to mention it to this audience. Uh, those of us in the in the from community, don't ignore the UJA. Get involved and make a difference. Simple as that. And that's obviously what Eric Goldstein continues to do there. And by the way, on the topic of Assemblyman Samanowitz of blessed memory, I thought it was very heartwarming when the Speaker of the Assembly called on his colleagues to come up and present the award and take the photos with the family. Uh, I thought it gave a nice family atmosphere to what's normally just a political atmosphere. Yeah, the Assembly Speaker, Carl Hastie, is a real mensch. He's somebody who has uh, absolutely, in the time that he's been there, been concerned about the Jewish community and their needs, and he's someone who has been very responsive. And it was great of him to come and to support the Samanowitz family and to show that, to your point, the New York State Assembly is one big family, and even in times that are difficult, they come together. And I thought, like you, it was really moving, and it meant a lot to the Samanowitz family, and it was important because... Michael Samanowitz really was a, a incredible leader, and he was dynamic, and he was young, and he was dedicated, and his loss is, is still felt by the entire broader Jewish community, and we thank him and his family for his service. No, no question about that. Finally, David, you know the ultimate question a week after the 42nd annual legislative breakfast. You have been on both sides of the legislative breakfast. With that in mind, how would you assess the uh, 2018 edition. Well, I would say it's much better to be a guest than it is <laughs> to be the executive producer of the breakfast. But I've been coming to the breakfast for nearly 20 years. It's the best breakfast the Met Council has ever had. It's the first time that we were sold out. It's the most elected officials that we ever had. And I think it's a recognition of the work that we're doing and that we're highlighting the challenge of Jewish poverty, and folks are recognizing that, and they're interested in being our partners, and I think that's really what's especially exciting. It was a bipartisan group, Congressman Dan Donovan from Staten Island, who's a very good friend and a great supporter of the Jewish communities in Staten Island, is a Republican who was there as well, including folks like Senator Marty Golden, the Democratic chairman of Queens, a great friend of the Jewish communities, Congressman Joe Crowley was there. So just to give you a great example of the kind of diversity that we had in the room, and everybody came up, and, and we did something which I think was unique, which was we said, look, we love Israel. And we obviously care about the multitude of issues in the community, but today is a day to talk about poverty and hatred. Right. And talk to us about what you're going to do to fight poverty within our community and talk about our 560,000 brothers and sisters who are literally struggling every day, which people can't understand. We actually deliver food to people who, if we didn't deliver food to them, they would have nothing to eat during the week. That is the crisis that we face, and that is what we have to be focused on, and that's the response that we have. And I'm thrilled to have had the first sold-out legislative breakfast. It was standing room only. We had more elected officials than ever before. We had an amazing response. And Baruch Hashem, we had Siata Shemaya. It was an incredible event. And, of course, I have a wonderful team behind me who literally worked day and night to ensure that we were able to pull this off. And same time, same place, next year at our new location at the Yale Club, we're going to have a breakfast. One thing people realize is you got to RSVP early this year because we got sold out. So it's not, it's not too early to RSVP for next year's legislative breakfast. Well, I'll make sure to take care of that later today. The Met Council on Jewish Poverty, 7.5 million meals through their Kosher Food Network 
every single year and tens, if not hundreds, of other social services, affordable housing, home repairs, help for Holocaust survivors. The list goes on and on and on. Information, if you know somebody who is in need, Met Council says call us. Seriously, they mean it. 24 hours a day, 212-453-9539. Again, that's 212-453-9539. You can also go to the web and learn more about all these programs that I either mentioned or have been alluding to, and that's metcouncil.org, metcouncil.org. David Greenfield is the CEO of MedCouncil. David, again, congratulations on the event and all that your organization continues to do and continued Hatzlacha, sir. Thank you, Nachum, and thank you so much. For years, you've been highlighting the work of the Met Council, but also the plight of those Jews who are in need, and we're incredibly grateful for that. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Have a great Monday. That was my conversation with David Greenfield of the Metropolitan Council on Jewish Poverty. Nefesh Benefesh is our next focus. Uh, just before Parsha Shlach, Rabbi Yoshua Fast, co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh, joined me with some incredibly inspiring words about Aliyah. Here's that conversation with Rabbi Josh Fass on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, you know when you hear this song about making Aliyah today, it can mean one and only one thing here at JM and the AM. Rabbi Fass is with us live via telephone. A little bit of behind the scenes. Rabbi Fass uh, has the most insane schedule this week and specifically today and is not even able to fit us in. And uh, I called him and uh, simply said to him that I need some personal chizuk on this Erev Shabbos Parsha Shlach, even if he can't join us. And he was able, thank goodness, to find a couple of minutes to join us this morning at JMDM. Rabbi Yehoshua Josh Fass, co-founder and the uh, director, the head, the president, uh, the man in charge of Nefesh Benefesh. Welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you so much. Good morning to you and to all your listeners. Hope you enjoyed New York. Hope you enjoyed the parade. Hope you got back to Israel uh, with, uh, with no problem. And I hope you were somewhat inspired by some people on this side of the world who still want to celebrate Israel. I was very inspired. Uh, this year, I think the crowd was larger than the past bunch of years, and just to see some of the schools come out in force was extremely emotional for me. I met a couple of the, president, uh, the principals at the end of the, of the parade line, and I asked a couple of them how many, and it was like all of them, a few hundred, a thousand kids. It was just remarkable that uh, every kid will come out and show their solidarity and show their love and show a passionate connection. And it shows that there is a future <laughs> to, our, to our love and to our longing for our homeland, and it was definitely heartwarming. Yeah, you and your organization have proven that there's a future, and you and your organization have proven that the future in the Jewish people is in the state of Israel. Rabbi Fass is with us. I'll, I'll do my quick message, and then I'll ask you for your quick message on this Arab Shabbos Parsha Shlach. We know that all well, those of you who are not familiar, Parsha Shlach, of course, the episode of the spies. I emphasize that 
16% of the spies went ahead and made God happy with the way they spoke about Israel, uh, while over uh, 80% of them, the greatest leaders of that generation, remember, while over 80% of them uh, went ahead and disappointed God. And uh, sometimes the majority of leadership does that. I am uh, confident, Rabbi Fass, I am confident that 16% of leadership on this side of the world, rabbis, principals that you mentioned, etc., are likely on the same path as Kalev and Yehoshua, at least 16%, which is all a very good sign. Hey, if we could be at or higher than the percent of what was going on in the Bible, I think that's a big victory. Uh, but, of course, the majority of them a disappointment, something to always keep in mind. And now I turn to you as we're about to read this Parsha Shlach. What are your thoughts on this Friday era of Shabbos? I, I agree with you. I think definitely we have more than uh, 16 or 17 or 20, 25 percent of our leadership that uh, understands um, where our nation belongs and the fate and the faith of the Jewish people is in our homeland in Israel. And I think they're, they're trying to cut through all the negativity and sometimes, God forbid, toxicity to share that inspiration and share that longing and passion to their congregants or followers or students. So there's tremendous hope and there's tremendous movement, and we see it. We also see an incredible new wave of connectivity of our young adults. Uh, a lot of students, after they graduate from college, are interested in making Aliyah. And the remarkable thing is, is that it's coming from communities that are not in the Orthodox world, and that fascinates me. Um, the kids who were on campus who were fighting anti-Israel sentiments and BDS, and they and now they graduate and they 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 want an outlet for all of that, for all of that advocacy and all of that connection, and they look to Israel to continue that path of connection, and I find that fascinating because their lives in Israel take on a completely different trajectory than what it would be in the United States. No uh, question. There's there's always a pasuk, uh, the critical pasuk, the critical verse in, in Parsha Shlach, is when Kalev and Yehoshua come back, and, and Kalev makes all these statements. And I just saw two different interesting nuances within the pasuk that I that I never saw before that are like uh, that let's discuss for a second. One of them is just the language. It says Kalev el Moshe, that Kalev quieted the nation el Moshe. In front of Moshe, the Yomer, you know, and the famous pasuk, the continuation of Alona Alevi Rashnotakiachonuchala. We can surely ascend. We can surely conquer the land. We can do it. It's positive reinforcement. But the two two nuances that that I think are are so insightful is number one, why does it say the Askalevatan El Moshe? Why does he silence the people in front of in front of or towards Moshe? And Rasadigon says something really beautiful that, that Kalev was just incredulous that this was happening, mm. that the Jewish people had this opportunity of, of a millennial, millennium and, and, and this opportunity of a fulfillment of prophecy. And he quiets them down because he's waiting for Moshe to respond. He's waiting for, for, for Moshe to, to at least echo the sentiments of Yoshua and Kalev and, and coming back as a singular voice and coming back where there's a vacuum of support, and just looking desperately for some kind of echoing or some kind of redundant statement, some kind of support for his position. And uh, 
I can definitely relate a little bit <laughs> to that nuance of that, of just desperately looking for that other voice of saying, come on, guys, let's, let's get on the plane. Let's, let's make it work. And the next nuance that I just wrote this morning when reviewing the Parsha is the Kliyakar, you know. The oh, Shins, yeah. The Shins, you know, and the Kliyakar points out a, a beautiful insight. He says, why does it double, double the language of Alona Allah, of ascend and ascend? And he says something very, very simple, but it's so profound. He says, The only way you can actually ascend and have a successful aliyah is actually if you try it. <laughs> Sometimes we, we, we allow our fears and we allow the negative outcomes or the risk to, to somehow to, to, to block and to hinder or to create these obstacles for us even trying. And, and, and the only way that you can allow is actually if you try, not alert. Just try it. It might not work, but try it. That's the, you, you can't have a successful aliyah if you don't even try it. And it always, it always boggles the mind that today a successful aliyah rate is over 90%. Mm. We've helped over, I've seen 57,000 olim make aliyah since, since the founding of Nefesh. And we know that over 90% of them stay. We're in touch with them. We have, we're in connection with, with the government of Israel. We know who flies back. We know who stays. And if you look at, you know, marital rates in America and divorce rates, we, no one says, you know what, I'm not going to try to get married because, you know, the risk is a small chance that it might not work out. Who does that? Who does that? If you're passionate about fulfilling your own personal dream, you try it. You try it. And, and the Kliyakar's insight is so profound. You, won't have a, you don't have a chance of anything successful if you don't just simply try it. And worst comes to worst, it doesn't work out. I think the greatest gift my parents gave, myself and my siblings, is that we tried Aliyah. And you know what? It failed. We were, we were in Israel when I was in fifth grade for 13, 14 months, and it failed. And we all went back. And it, was, and it wasn't a happy year for us. <laughs> it, it was a confluence of a lot of different obstacles, and we weren't pleased by that Aliyah attempt. But fast forward to today, my parents are back in Israel, my, my siblings all live in Israel, and, and all the grandchildren and great-grandchildren live in Israel. So we tried. It didn't work out. The timing wasn't good. We went back to America, and years later, we all tried again, and we're all succeeding at it. So you cannot, you can't have a successful attempt at anything if you don't attempt it. So, and I think the Kliyakar's word of Alona Aleh is not just for Israel-bound individuals, it's for anything that's important in our lives. Sometimes the, the power of inertia is so strong, the power of fear is so debilitating that we, we, we hunker down in our seats and don't move. And if something is important to us, even if there is a risk of failure, we have to try. Just try. I asked you for chizuk. You have uh, strengthened me personally, and I know you've strengthened the people who are tuned in right now. Unbelievable. Rabbi Yoshua Fass on this Erev Shabbos Parsha Shlach, which is our tradition. Next month, we'll have an opportunity to talk more about Aliyah. 
because uh, that's when the first uh, 2018 charter flight will take place. And Rabbi Fast, you remind me of my friend Rabbi Grumberg, who would always say to me years ago, always have a plan. Even if you're not heading there yet, always have the current plan that if things work out, this is what we're going to do. And if it doesn't work out, you rework the plan. And that's uh, very sure. similar to the words you're saying with Alonale. Kalakavod to you. Thank you so much for taking the time and for inspiring us. And we will be in touch. And let us all on this part. Anytime for you, my dear friend. I appreciate that. And let us all on this Shabbat Parsha Shlach remember the good of Eretz Yisrael. Tadarabah. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. There he is. Rabbi Yoshua Fass. Amazing. That was my conversation with Rabbi Josh Fass of Nefesh Benefesh. Nefesh Benefesh has Again, announced the Bonate Sion Awardees, this time for 2018. Arsen Ostrovsky is a recipient in the area of Israel advocacy. He joined me recently on JM in the AM. My conversation with Arsen Ostrovsky here on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, Arsen Ostrovsky is with us live via telephone. He is somebody that has a very, very difficult job. He is an international human rights lawyer and executive director of the Israeli Jewish Congress, an Israel-based NGO serving as a bridge between Jewish communities in Europe and Israeli leaders and officials while supporting the Jewish state around the world in the fight against anti-Semitism, BDS, and delegitimization. Arson has testified and spoken in support of Israel before the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, UN in New York, the European Parliament, the Knesset, and many high-level forums in Europe and the United States. He's considered an expert on anti-Semitism and BDS, as well as international law and Middle East foreign policy. Has been published by major publications around the world and is a frequent commentator on TV and radio. He's also lectured widely on Israel and the Middle East. Arsen Ostrovsky, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you for having me. You know, you said I've got a difficult job. That's true, but it's uh, it's a very fulfilling one as well, I should say. You know, it's funny. I had a couple of thoughts as I was reading about you, and um, and the first was, I hope and pray, although I'm probably wrong, and it's probably fruitless to, to hope this way, I hope and pray that you never have Jews on the other side of your debates and discussions. But but I guess that would be unrealistic, right? Uh Two Jews and how many opinions? <laughs> um, you should know that by now. Um, no, look, I have, uh, you know, I, <laughs> the Jews are by their very definition we're an argumentative people. Um, but I think that's important because it also forces us to oh, I, think I, and I, talk. Oh, I, I get but, that. Um, I, I get that. But I, have, but, I, but, I, but I mean even further. I mean, God forbid that there should be people on the other side when you are fighting BDS, and God forbid those who are promoting the BDS movement, God forbid, should be from our people. That's what I mean. The, look, the fact of the matter is, the reality today, you're right, there are. Yeah. Uh, there are people from, purportedly from, you know, from outside. Um, Jews, uh, those who claim to be pro-Israel, for example, that uh, do support uh, the BDS, that uh, do promote um, attacks on the, or delegitimization against the State of Israel, and we have to deal with that. In many ways, like we deal with anyone, uh, we have to deal with it on the facts, and we have to uh, call them out for it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there there are questions that people ask all the time, and they're difficult to answer. Um, so, I don't know if I can if I can expect a a a a comprehensive answer from you. And you may be as baffled as as we are. But why do you think we, or I should say, the state of Israel? is held to a completely different standard at places like the U.N. 
and in other you know uh, seats of government that you've spoken in than any other country. Yeah, look, I think we only need to have a look at just what happened yesterday. Um, we saw, uh, you know, the UN, which has in many ways become, you know, this theater of, uh, of absurd. Uh, we saw yesterday, you know, a resolution passed, 120 nations voted in favor of it, I think eight voted against the US, Australia being two of them, which made me especially proud as an Australian who, who moved to Israel. Right. Um, and about 40-something nations abstained. Uh, you know, it was a blatantly uh, one-sided resolution. Anyone could uh, could see that, but nonetheless, uh, countries either abstained or voted in favor of it, and that is disappointing. And it's, uh, you know, I think for many, it's an easy option. Um, it's an easy way out. Um, some uh, maybe are afraid of uh, the consequences. Um, we, um, you know, some might be uh, thinking it's a politically expedient uh, option to, um, you know, to carry them favor with uh, with other possible allies in the region. Um, or they think that it's, you know, if you're looking at it from a campus perspective today, university, it's a popular thing. And it's been this... Um, I think in many ways the sort of this David and Goliath battle that's been twisted and turned um, upside, upside down where the established narrative today, and I think incorrectly so, is that the Palestinians are the, the victims and the Israelis are the aggressors. And um, therefore Israel needs to be held to a separate standard. And I think that's disappointing. But that being said, I think it's uh, incumbent upon us and anyone for that matter that uh, Cares not only about Israel but about peace to um, to be there and to be able to um, you know to correct the misconceptions, the lies. Um, but also, I think, and this is where it's really important, and possibly in many ways, why you know maybe why we dropped the ball in some ways uh, that we allowed our detractors to establish the narrative, and they established their narrative of what the Palestinians want for them what Israel means, for them that Zionism is racism and so on. Right. And for a long time, we were absent from that conversation. Yeah, because we never believed, or, we never believed the conversation could become that absurd. We weren't prepared for it. Correct, and it has. And right. we are now playing catch-up. And when today, you know, when, um, you know, when I think Michael Oren actually said this, the former ambassador to the United States, um, when he said, you know, we're asking people to be champions of Israel, but what are they championing? And I think that's something really critical point that we need to focus on that, you know, what is the narrative of Israel? It's, uh, you know, it's not necessarily just related to the the, the conflict. It's, uh, you know, it's so much more than that. It's culture, it's religion, it's history. It's, uh, there's so many different things that uh, connect people to, uh, to the Jewish state. And so I think we really need to do a much better job in terms of uh, pushing this narrative so people also... Um, not just from the Jewish community, but outside, um, you know, that they are able to form a, uh, a connection to Israel and understand what we're facing and what we stand for. And through that, um, why, you know, supporting Israel is not just uh, in their interest, but it's in everyone's interest. Harsen Ostrovsky with us live via telephone, international human rights lawyer and executive director of the Israeli Jewish Congress. He is receiving the Bonet Zion Prize. Nefesh Benefesh has these distinguished and incredible recipients of the 2018 Sylvan Adams Nefesh Benefesh Bonet Zion Prizes, and he receives this year's 2018 in the field of Israel advocacy, a phenomenal choice by Nefesh Benefesh. We'll talk more about that a little later on. But on your earlier point, you know, the default is always anti-Semitism. The default is always if they're doing something in a public forum condemning Israel for whatever it is, whether it's what's happening in Gaza, whether it's what's happening 
Uh, no matter what the topic, our default is always anti-Semitism. I think, I think the point you made about political expediency and the um, advantages that some countries, some leaders have when they go ahead and um, and and come out against Israel is sometimes overlooked. It's not. It's not always. Uh, blanket anti-Semitism. Some is just a smart thing politically for a country or a leader to do. Uh, look, you're right. I mean, it's not all. Uh, look, it's not always anti-Semitism, and it's something we have to be very, very mindful of. Uh, but you know, when there is this incessant obsession against Israel, when we see Israel being singled out, when we see double standards being applied to the Jewish state that are not being applied to uh, to any other state for that matter, then naturally one can't help but ask uh, those questions. Um, but you know, even in the wake of yesterday's uh, vote, for example, you know, I had a numerous conversations with a number of uh, ambassadors, for example, and other people uh, in the diplomatic circles, and they truly said, you know, that they either they voted the way they did because they truly believe that uh, that it um, progresses or advances the two-state solution or peace when, uh, you know, that's their political interpretation. Um, whereas, you know, I think any reasonable objective reading of uh, not just the resolution that passed, uh, but, you know, it's very clearly, you know, I think uh, the situation is uh, something to the contrary, that, you know, not only does it reward Hamas, but it uh, denies our right to self-defense. Now, that's not necessarily anti-Semitic for someone to vote for that resolution, but it certainly, I don't think, is... Uh, is helpful uh, for those that do um, wish for there to be uh, peace in the, in the region. Yeah. Um, is it, it You moved to Israel six years ago, and again, as I said, we'll talk about Nefesh Nefesh in a moment, but is it easier to do your job in Israel, outside of Israel, the way you were doing it in Australia, or is it irrelevant where you are? Um, look, there's pros and cons wherever you are. Um, it, uh, you know, there are difficulties of doing the job from here, but at the end of the day, um, I wanted to do what I'm doing as an Israeli, right. quite simply. Um, you know, I, you know, I've worked, I've, you know, I've lived in the diaspora. I've worked uh, as an Israel advocate in the diaspora in Australia, in uh, in uh, in America before moving to Israel. And there's a, the diaspora plays a crucial, crucial role. Um, you know, I firmly believe that Israel is the Jewish state. And from my point of view, you need a strong diaspora for a strong Israel, but you also need a strong Israel to have a strong diaspora as well. Uh, but for me personally, it was a decision that, um, and again, you know, I uh, fully recognize it's different for everyone. It's something very inherently personal. But for me, it was a choice of, you know, I could either watch from the outside or I could be here, or I could do this as an Israeli. Um, I could either, you know, watch history unfold, or I could, you know, as a bystander, or I could be part of the change. You know, I could vote. Um, I could participate in all aspects of domestic politics. Um, so for me, it was a very inherently personal decision in that way. But I do believe, you know, there are difficulties and challenges, whether you're advocating for Israel uh, from Israel or from the diaspora, but I think both play a very crucial role in their respective ways. Arsene Ostrovsky is with us. If you if you agree, as uh, we continue to state, that Nefesh Benefesh is the uh, preeminent uh, organization and outfit when it comes to Aliyah at this point in 2018 and has been for quite a while, then it must be uh, heartwarming to be recognized by them with their Bonetzion Award in the area of Israel advocacy. Um, oh, absolutely! Look, it was actually it was quite surreal um, when I, um, you know, when when they called me. It was a, 
It was actually it was around Purim time, so I actually thought it was a Purim spiel for a second. <laughs> That's great. Um, I, uh, that, then I got the, the email, and I'm like, okay, well that looks uh, that looks official. Uh, so I think I think it's I think it's kosher now. It's okay. Um, no, look, it's it is still surreal. I mean, first of all, I'm incredibly indebted to Nefesh Benefesh, uh, not just for this award, but for everything that they do uh, in promoting Aliyah. Um, but you know, they're uh, you know, look, the last award that I received, I think it was a under 14s uh, cricket match in, in school. Um, you did that, you that, did that, well, that, huh? That, <laughs> I, did, I did well. It's, it's a big uh, it's a big plus. So it's, it's been a few years uh, since, but um, no, look. It's it's surreal because I uh, I never expected to get an award for doing something that's quite simply the right thing to do. Mm. You know, I'm a Jew, I'm a Zionist, and for me to uh, support, to advocate for Israel, it's just the most natural thing in the world. So to receive a, a prize for it was uh, certainly not something that I expected. Um, but to receive a prize, you know, I read, you know, you know, this incredibly, uh, you know, there's some of the other recipients across different categories, you know, some of whom I know and some of whom I admire so tremendously is incredible honor. And especially, you know, when it, I think it really hit me, especially um, in the year that we're celebrating 70 years of the modern state of Israel's independence. So right. to receive such an award at this particular juncture in history and time was, uh, you know, an incredibly tremendous honor and um, very indebted to Nefesh, Benefesh again, not just for everything that they that they do to promote Aliyah, but, you know, having lived now in Israel for a number of years, since 2012, you know, for me, the, the biggest thing that differentiates them, and I should say, by the way, that I would, I wouldn't have been here were it not for their efforts uh, beforehand. But what differentiates them for me is the fact that they're still here with me after I made Aliyah. Right. And that's the big difference. In what, city, in what city do you live? I live in Tel Aviv. Hmm. I live in Tel Aviv, but I make a point of it. Uh, you, know, this is, you know, it's a small country we have here. It's a very small country. You can, uh, you know, a 45-minute uh car ride, you can be in Jerusalem. In 45 minutes, New York by subway, you might maybe make it from Midtown to uh, <laughs> to Brooklyn if, if you're lucky. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I live in Tel Aviv, but I certainly make sure to explore and see this really quite incredible land, and it's really quite a, quite a privilege. Arsene Ostrovsky is with us, international human rights lawyer, executive director of the Israeli Jewish Congress, recognized by uh, Nefesh Benefesh, Bonate Sion 2018, uh, awardee in the area of uh, Israel advocacy. So when you hear the news yesterday that Johannesburg's health minister was suspended after declaring that Johannesburg is a, quote, friend of Israel, do you toss yourself into the social media fray and get involved in in supporting that minister and combating you know things that are being said, or this is not exactly your area of expertise? Um, no, actually, in this case, I did, um, and I have colleagues in South Africa who actually called out for help. Um, they said, "Look, we we need help uh, online as well, not just in in person um, there, but on the ground, but also online, because so much, you know we're fighting this on." We're fighting the battle for Israel across so many different battlegrounds. We have our soldiers on the ground in Gaza. We have our diplomats at the UN. We have our lawyers at the international courts. You name it. But we're also fighting a battle of narratives online. And it's really, you know, on, on the one hand, it's an opportunity to, you know, for us to put out our message. What is Israel? Um, what, you know, but, but on the other hand, 
you know, you see some of the most heinous attacks on the Jewish state and the Jewish people, uh, which, you know, really force us to respond. But it's, you know, in many ways, we also have to be smart, not just loud. And, um, you know, when it comes to digital diplomacy, I think it's something also that, uh, you know, many many people ask me, you know, I want to, you know, regular people, they say, look, you know, I want to I want to support Israel. I want to advocate for Israel. But, you know, not everyone can go to their elected officials and lobby. Not everyone can necessarily write an article in an op-ed. Anyone, anyone can be active online. Anyone can post something on their Facebook or their Twitter or their Instagram or YouTube or whatever the social media channel they're using. So it's, I think it's really today, uh, especially amongst younger people, um, really quite crucial. It's in a, really quite a vital platform for us, not just to dispel the mistruths, the lies, the, the attacks, but also really for us to reach out to billions of people around the world South Africa, Europe, North America, Asia, elsewhere, um, and also as a way for us to engage them, uh, which is something that uh, we really need to be doing much more. And uh, doing that online is, I think, uh, an incredible platform that opens us to people we never would have had an opportunity to otherwise. I mentioned earlier that uh, you have the opportunity to uh, fight for Israel, anti-BDS, anti against anti-Semitism, etc., in uh, houses of government, in... Um in houses of justice around the world, etc. Um, I'm sure you're well aware what's going on on the uh, on the United States college campus scene. Um, what would you say to people? There are people who are who are students themselves. Many people in this audience who are parents of students who are in very sensitive situations, attending colleges uh, all across this country, and and on a daily basis, maybe a little less often than that, confronting these types of issues. What would you say to them? Um, look, uh, it's tough. It really is tough, um, and it's it's not easy. And I think uh, it has a lot, a lot of implications in long term because it's forcing a lot of uh, otherwise proudly Jewish students um, to um, hide their Jewishness, uh, certainly hide their Zionism or their the support for Israel, because you know they say, well. You know, either one, why do I need the trouble? Why do I need the, to wear my heart on my sleeve for everyone to know when they can only cause uh, grievances and troubles and arguments or when I will be attacked? So it's easier for them to just step back. And I think that has a lot of implications long term in terms of, uh, you know, connection to, uh, to, the, to Israel, especially with the younger generation as they uh, grow up and go through uh, colleges and campuses. So it's, it's, definitely not easy, but it's a battle we need to fight, and I think the best way to do that is through education. And it's not only uh, not only learning about Israel, not only learning about Jewish identity and, and history, but it's also, um, that's, that's very, one very important part of it, but it, we also need to learn how to convey um, these messages, because it's one thing knowing the facts, that's, that's wonderful, and we need that. But then we also have to know how to convey that. How do you engage someone on campus who, whether willfully or whether ignorantly, uh, supports the BDS? Um, how do you engage them? You know, you know the facts, but then what do you do? Um, we need to give them support. They need to know that the mainstream Jewish community is behind them, in which case many of them are. Um, but we certainly need to do more, and I, I know that the State of Israel also shares a very important burden in that. And uh, I think just yesterday, um, Naftali Bennett, who's the Minister of Diaspora and Education, made some important remarks to that effect. And I think Israel can do a lot in that 
sense as well to uh, support them through education, through through programs that um, um, that bring uh, students to Israel. And you know, on that, I have to say, you know, I was a product of uh, Birthright and Masa. Wow! And uh, I, my first my first time to Israel was in 2013 on Birthright. Huh. Um, sorry, 2003. Sorry. And you know, for many years, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go when it's quiet. I'm going to go when it's peaceful and safe. Uh, I got to a point where I said, enough is enough. I'm not going to wait. So of course, I went in the peak of the Second Intifada, <laughs> um, uh, much to the. <laughs> To the joy of uh, my parents, <laughs> no, I'm sure. um, but you know what? That was my first experience, and that was for me a taste. And that was 2003. You know, after that, I, you know, finished my, you know, university, and like every good, you know, Jewish child, I went to law school and <laughs> and practiced, but maintained my, um, you know, throughout my connection to Israel and um, advocacy efforts. But you know, I got to a point where I also said, you know what? Maybe. I do want to make Aliyah. So I, to cut a very long story short, I went on a long-term Asar program. So for me, programs like these, especially for someone like from Australia who's so far away from Israel uh, physically, uh, not uh, conceptually, but physically, um, to be there in person, you know, definitely for me reaffirmed that certainly Aliyah was for me. Now, it's not necessarily for everyone, but even for those that do not make Aliyah, they become more connected to their Jewish identity, more connected to the state of Israel, stronger, prouder Zionists. So I think uh, with all my respect that uh, programs like these that bring uh, young people here, whether high school or college students, are truly the best investments we can make in the future, both for Israel and the diaspora. Amazing. want to wish you a Mazal Tov. You are a recipient of the 2018 Bonetzian Award given by Nefesh Benefesh, yours in the area of Israel advocacy. An unbelievable choice. Arsen Ostrovsky, Mazal Tov to you, and thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Arsen Ostrovsky, uh, one of the Bonetzian awardees as announced by Nefesh Benefesh for 2018. That wraps up this edition of JM Rewind. Make sure to be tuned in every single Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time for another edition of JM Rewind and when it encores on our network as well. And I thank you for listening to the Nahum Siegel Network.